And the Oscar goes to Carly Simon for Let the River Run from Working Girl. This is this is really for you, Mike. You you are the guardian angel tonight. Thank you so much, and thank you to my husband Jim Hart for writing the best lines in the song. Thank you, sweetheart, and to 20th Century Fox and to Clive Davis and everyone at Arista, and to Rob Mounsey who made the song sound good. And this is my 80s-ography. Part 2 of the interview begins now. 1984. So we're in 84 now. Wow. Um, all the eighty-four. Quick question on um, with Chaka Khan on Eye to Eye. It's a single I had at the time, and I hadn't heard it in a long time. I was listening quite a lot recently. It's, it's a lovely song, actually. Eye to Eye. You I played the, the Synclavia on that. I did. What was um, I, distinctive about the Synclavia? Well, I've never, I never owned, I never owned, and I don't remember this song. Eye to Eye. Yeah, Eye to Eye. It's, it's a big hit in the UK. The top twenty single Maybe in the UK. It's- Maybe it's on the I Feel For You it is, album. Yes, it is on the I Feel For You album. Yeah. Yes. Well, my biggest regret, I'm looking it up on uh, uh, Apple Music as we speak. Mm-hmm. Um, my, one of my biggest regrets in my life is that Arif Martin invited me to uh, produce something on that album. And I s- sort of uh, blinked and missed it. I like was working on other stuff and then it didn't happen. I should have pursued it. It's just a business. Can you hear that? Yeah, I can hear that, yeah. I don't remember this at all. <laughs> really? Either it wasn't a memorable session or you didn't work and you got the credit wrong. That's really great. It's, it's really aged well. That is, that's... Hmm. Not ringing any bells. The chorus is kind of is tickling a few um, long dormant neurons somewhere. <laughs> I, 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 
<laughs> but you worked on so many songs. Like, it's in one yeah. decade. I, I assume a few would like slip by the old memory banks. Yeah, that almost sounds like a real uh, L.A. kind of L.A. songwriter song, like a Randy Goodrum kind of song or something. It does sound like layers of, of synths, like a built sort of thing. Yeah. No, I don't really remember the song. I don't know what I did. And I don't know why I would have played a synclavier. Um, Paul Simon owned one. And I played some a little bit on Graceland. Okay. Uh, but... I never owned one. I think maybe Phil, maybe Phil Ramon's company owned one, but he wouldn't, he wouldn't have been involved in this. This was a Reef Martin. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. That's, that is lost in the sands of time. It was lost <laughs> in, the, in the mists of time. In the mists of time. Okay. You also had your own jazz fusion project. Joe Cole, with an yeah. album, Party Animals. So yeah. was there an urge at this time to do your own thing, to be out, out front more? Or was this case that just happened to come together and just well, a it little was side of, project? You know, three, these three friends of mine, we were playing together constantly in the studio. And uh, they just uh, felt like they wanted to play live in some clubs in New York. So... Um, so we, you know, we got together. I, I wrote most of the music for it and we played in some clubs. And then, you know, Japanese companies at the time were, were fascinated with New York studio musicians. They thought those are the, you know, they were, they had a fascination. They were like sports stars, really. It's almost like they traded baseball cards or something. So they signed us and we also played with the uh, Japanese uh Japanese artist Sadao Watanabe, who was a saxophone player, very well known in Japan. And that was part of that connection. And we actually toured, we toured Japan for that record. We toured like a dozen cities in Japan or something to promote that, strange strange but true. And how was the touring? Was that good? Did it get a good reception? It was, it was fun. Oh yeah, it was fun. I mean, we had, we had fans. I mean, that, you know, that's a strange record full of strange music. Yes. But... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. but, uh, yeah, but you know, playing it live was fun and uh, people enjoyed it. Do you have a favorite track? Oh, okay. <laughs> you like them all equally. It's hard to it's hard to re hard to remember. Um, the guitar player Jeff Jeff Miranoff, who's a wonderful guitarist, wrote a his one his one contribution to writing is a really great little tune called Borderland, which is very very pretty. Against All Odds by Phil Collins. Yes. It's one of the yeah. things we did the research. Like I, I would have known you initially from Billy Joel. That's why I'd have first seen your name. Yeah. And then you, when you joined the dots, you realize this is the guy who did this, this, and this. And you you played the piano and the synths. So yes. apart from the drums and the orchestration, it's all you basically. Yes. So how did that come about? And how was it? I assume you did it a bit afterwards. It was actually really difficult the way it came together. That was a reef and yes. a reef called me for this 
And uh, Phil was there. He, I don't know that Phil ever figured out who the heck I was, <laughs> but um, he was around. But Arif had written out a piano part. It was it was written out almost note for note, and it was seven pages or something. It was wide, and I had to play it with a Lindrum machine. There there was there was no track. The first yeah. thing was the piano, but I had to play it to a Lindrum machine, just going. Psst. It was like a, a hi hat and a cross stick, and the tempo's not fast. You know, it's kind of a slowish kind of ballad tempo. So it was it was really really quite difficult. <laughs> I don't think it took too long, and and Arif was uh, was very uh, kind about letting me uh, take a take the time that I needed to do it. Um, there was very little that I could improvise or add to the part. There is a little bit. You know, the voicing of the very last chord is something that I kind of improvised and that he liked. It's mostly written out note for note and had to do it to a slow click. So it was really hard. So how many takes do you think it was? I don't remember. I mean, I was I was sweating bullets, <laughs> but, I, but we, we got there. And then they asked me to come in to the booth and I had my old Roland Jupiter 8 in there and I played a very sustained organ bass part. That was relatively easy. And then, and then Arif went out in the room and he had done this string arrangement. String section showed up. Arif conducted this very nice string arrangement on it. And I was watching, of course, carefully, you know, listening for stuff that I could steal from him. Uh, he's, he was a wonderful arranger, among other wonderful things that he was. He's a great gentleman. And then uh, the drums, I think, were after everything. The drums were after the bass and the strings and, the, and then the vocal. I mean, Phil's stuff, I guess, was last. So weird to record drums at the end of a track, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there was a click track to do it to and all that. And then it was a huge hit. It was number one hit. Massive. So do you remember the first time you heard the finished version? No, I don't. I so don't. would it not have been until you heard it on the radio or on MTV? Maybe, Maybe. yeah, yeah. Did you ever meet Phil and, and speak to him about it? Hey, I met him, but I, he, did, he didn't remember me and he didn't know who I was. And uh, <laughs> he never figured out who I was. Uh, then uh, Arif died, sadly, and he had a, a huge memorial service here in New York. And Phil spoke and I, you know, I met him outside and I said, you know, I'm, I'm Rob Mounsey and the guy that played on that song. And Oh, great. It's great to meet you again. He went to speak for, for Arif and he said, I just met Robbie Buchanan again. <laughs> oh, no. He mixed me up with Robbie Buchanan, who is another you know, he, Robbie's a great musician in L.A., so I was kind of upset about that. But oh, a reef son, Joe, kind of set the crowd straight. Said that was Robbie Buchanan, but that was Rob Mounsey you talked to, and all that stuff. It's I like never broke through with Phil, but but when and, you hear that song now, what do you feel? Uh, or what do you think? What do you feel? Do you feel proud? Do you feel? That's a good day's work. You feel it was a yeah. It was a day at the office. Really, even when you listen to like, because that's sure a brilliant yeah. record. It's a great song. But it's a brilliant record, and yeah, the piano. It's, I mean, it's the it's the it's the heart of the song is the keyboards. Yeah, it's the piano yeah. and the synth. It's such an integral part of the song. Yes. Do you not yeah. feel any kind of pride when you listen to that thing? Like, that's well, when that's you me. Think about it. I mean, 
part of what you needed to be a, a working studio musician was to be a good sight reader. And, you know, I, I could sight read well. I could sight read pretty fast. And that's why I would get called for something like that. You know, I was basically sight reading a reef's part. I mean, you also have to play it with some kind of sensitivity. And, yeah, like, that's what make comes it, across, yeah. Make, to make it mean something. So, you, you know, I, I, <laughs> I don't know. I, I guess I hear it and I think, well, that, you know, it was a nice piece of work I can feel good about. But, you know, what's really interesting is to hear it playing in a supermarket or a cafe. Yes, that was going to be one of my questions. And look around at people and like they're, you know, they're serving you a coffee or something. They have no idea that they're listening to you. This is my, I ask this pretty much every interview, like in that queue in Starbucks, do you ever like nudge the person in front of you and go, that's me, that is. Because I I so would, I would do that every day of my life. Once or twice I have. Oh, have you? When was the last time you did that? Well, I, I produced a record for Aaron Neville called Nature Boy. I think it was in 2007. And I was with my wife and it was her birthday. No, it was our anniversary. We went to a little restaurant out at the beach in the east end of Long Island. And the record had just come out and they were playing it at this charming little restaurant. It was, I had just, we had just finished it. They said, oh, that's, that's my record. I just finished this. And, you know, people say, really? Oh, that's, that's really nice. This is a good record. And you say, well, thank you. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) The greatest thing you ever learned is just to love. And be loved in return. Nineteen eighty-five. So into eighty-five, another yes. massive, massive hit. Crazy for you, Madonna. Yes. Now, now I'm trying to get a sense of what your contribution was. It seems like you had quite a big contribution to this. Um, there's a quote here: "Songwriters Betty yes. and Lind, who left disappointed after the first sessions, praised producer Jody Bean for bringing in award-winning composer Rob Mancy to transform the song into a hit record with a new arrangement and background vocals." Now, is that accurate? Is that how you remember it? <laughs> partly. Okay. Partly. That that is partly accurate. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Into the detail of this. For one thing, well, there was there was a, an earlier version of the song that Phil Ramone started producing, and um, it didn't succeed, and somebody shot it down. And Madonna never liked the song. She hated the song. She didn't want to do it. She was doing it for the movie, for this movie. Jelly Bean was her boyfriend at the time, and Madonna had just kind of broken out with Like a Virgin, I think. And Jelly Bean was a DJ, a, a DJ at, at Xenon in New York. And um, Warner Brothers, Warner, it, this was a Warner Brothers project, and I had just done a couple of albums with Michael Franks, and we worked with a guy at Warner Brothers, Michael Austin, who was Mo Austin's son. Mo Austin was a big head of Warner's for a long time. Yeah. And somebody, I guess, said to Jelly Bean, um, "This is a ballad. You're like a dance record DJ. This is a ballad. You need someone to help you. You need some. You need some kind of arranger." because it's a ballad. You need this guy, Mounsey, and I had just been working on the, the Michael Frank stuff. And that's that's how I got onto it, actually. It's Warner Brothers told Jelly Bean that he, he needed me. <laughs> Maybe he did, I don't know. 
But anyway, what I ended up doing, it was really strange. She had a drummer named Stephen Breyer who had played these drum parts, which were really good. They're, they're on the record, but not much else. And what I ended up doing was sort of writing an orchestral arrangement, like kind of writing a four staff or six staff orchestral sketch, and then playing all the parts individually on some keyboards, mostly on, a, on my old Jupiter 8, but also on some Yamaha DX7s. Yamaha DX7 had just come out. This was a, everybody was gaga over it because it was the first instrument to have MIDI from the factory. MIDI interface. MIDI was brand new, right? So I played all these orchestra parts, which I was struggling with. I always felt like it sounded a little strange, but there they were. And did those little distorted guitar parts, the thirds. Uh, on these D two, two DX7s MIDI together, both going through these little uh, Ibanez tube screamer stomp boxes. I used to love to put stomp boxes on keyboards just for fun. And then, um, see, that stuff was built. And at some point, Madonna like wandered around in and around and she said, you know, you know, this, this song's for a movie. You know how there's always like an oboe solo or something in a movie? Can we like put an <laughs> oboe on this? No, really. Yeah. Are there lots of oboe solos in songs in movies? Uh, not in songs maybe, but you know, like poignant, oh, poignant okay, oboe or English horn solos in a movie score, you know? Right, yeah, okay. It was her idea, because she said, can we put an oboe on this? Said, you know, aren't there like oboes in movies and stuff? <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I said, uh, yeah, I guess we can. And I, I, I uh, had a pencil and I had some some uh, manuscript paper and I, I had the track and we called up George Marge, who was the preeminent double reed player in New York at the time. And I sketched out some little lines for the oboe and George March showed up, came over, showed up, played what I wrote down and left. It was Madonna's idea and I have to say that it was a good idea. Yeah, it does sound good actually, yeah. You wouldn't really think of putting an oboe in a Madonna ballad, would you? But so it, yeah. so it has those little remarks, has those little ba -da -da, yeah. ba -da -da, -da, and then the DX7 is So it became, you know, part of the personality of the record. And I think, uh, you know, kind of an unusual, colorful part of the personality of it. And that was her idea. But then I came back, I heard that they were mixing. She was mixing with the engineer, Mike Hutchinson at Sigma Sound in New York. And I was out on the street. I, don't, I guess I was in touch with Mike Hutchinson. I don't know. Someone said, uh, we're mixing that song. Do you want to come by? And uh, now here's a story I've never told. And it doesn't really make me look very good. But um, I had never heard the background vocals. They, she had put those on herself. Those background vocals that go bong, 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 like they're doing the, uh, the chimes. Crazy for you. You know, like your doorbell. Yeah. I had never heard those. And I went over there and it was just Mike and Madonna working on the mix. And I heard those background vocals and I just started laughing. They struck me as really funny. And it was, part, it was partly because I was stoned. I was like smoking dope. <laughs> And you know they were—they had three full tracks, three full vocal performances from Madonna, and they were going through it trying to comp a vocal together. They were listening to each track separately, and I—I I could not hear a single line on any of the three tracks that I thought was good enough. 
I didn't think a lot of her as a singer. And you know, John Bettis and John Lynn think the background vocals were my idea. I thought, I thought they didn't make any sense to me. And I was sitting behind them on the couch, and I kept cracking up, laughing, like giggling. I because I was high. And you know, Madonna finally turned around and looked at me, and she said, "I think you should go." And I said, "You're right. I'm sorry." And I and I left. But the record went to number one. <laughs> I think I was, I think I was in Hawaii when I. Uh, when I heard it on the radio, because I was on my way back from Japan or something. I said the arrangement was your your idea, but not the yeah, background like vocals. Most of it, like all, yes, not the background vocals. Not the background vocals. And okay. I wouldn't have done that either. And I, I still think they, they're really kind of goofy. Like, I, it's a weird choice. The oboe was her idea. That was a good idea. Yeah. And the drums on it are are nice. Like, I like the drums. It's this guy, Stephen, Stephen Bray. So basically the keyboards on the finished record, are they actual ones that you played or is it based on the demo that you recorded where you, you created this arrangement for it? There's no demo that I know of. I okay, know. so, so what's, what's on there is what you played, basically. Yeah, yeah. Oh, excellent. Yeah, yeah. So it was all cobbled together at different places, different times. And I remember Phil being a little bent out of shape because he had been working on a version of the song and it somehow got shot down. Right. So anyway, that's crazy for you. So, did you still feel like a working studio musician when he had two consecutive number ones over two years? Did that ever leave you? Did you always, always feel like a working studio musician? I don't know. There were three number ones, actually. Did you include uh, White of Fools Falling? Oh, of course. No, I haven't. Yeah. 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 There was uh, Against All Odds and it was crazy for you. There you go. You so, know, three number just... ones in what? four or five years surely then you must feel like i've I'm, i've crossed the line here i'm, I'm you know I'm... it depends on who you ask you know i like to talk to um young students now i do something once a year here at nyu you know I, I i work with musicians who say wow you're such a legend can i have a picture with you and then there are other ones that say i've I never heard of you can you spell your name again and, and then you you know if you talk to young really young people it's it's more like oh yeah i think my mom used to love that record something like that yeah well young people i don't know it unless it's in the tiktok video like all these young people <laughs> discovered dreams by fleetwood mac because it's on the tiktok yeah. video it's like yeah right 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 yeah that's a different thing it's, it's, it's everything's relative i guess it keeps you humble right if you know sure i mean you know a lot of people have no idea so is that a partly why you like to be an artist sometimes is, it, is that frustrating to you i mean if you walk past somebody whistling a tune you've worked on whistling against all odds is that pleasing to you that it walked past you and not know that you're involved with that? Or is it something that's like frustrating? Like, no, why do you not know that that's it my piano? Oh, it really doesn't, it really doesn't matter. <laughs> I have to say it doesn't matter. Right. You know, it's like people asking you, how would you like to be remembered? You know, your answer has to be, well, why do I have to be remembered? Is that necessary? I don't know. I mean, we, we, we could become very mystical. I'm an old hippie. So 
Okay. <laughs> the music will live on forever, though. That's the thing. Maybe. Oh, well, probably not, actually, but probably. You don't for, think? Probably for a long time. For as long as we're around, I mean, these songs, Crazy For You, Against All Odds, will always be around. I suppose. Because, like, yeah, if young people know about them, they, they like them, they love them, they love these songs. Yeah, you still hear them in clothing stores and restaurants. Crazy for you. 1986. Okay, 86. Some big albums in 86. There's Back in the High Life, Steve Winwood. You worked yes. on, on several tracks on that. Great record. Yes. Any any recollections of, of working on that? Any particular memories that stand out? Um, just, you know, just piecing things together with Russ Teitelman. It was very much, it was more built with technology. There's a great drummer and drum programmer named Jimmy Braylauer who did a lot of that stuff. He would build a basic thing. There would be some live drumming. There would be different, different electronics. That's really a really good record. We'll be back in the And also Billy Joel, The Bridge. Um, you were talking yeah. on four tracks on that one. Yeah. I remember doing uh, Big Man on Mulberry Street. It sounds fantastic. Yeah, that was fun. That was really fun. You know in my own heart I'm a big man on Mulberry Street I play the whole part I leave a big tip with every receipt I saw Was there a lot of freedom in the in the arrangements you had for that? Yeah, a fair amount. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They gave me a general direction. That was the last album that he made with Phil Ramone. Did you sense they were they were kind of winding down as a partnership at that time, or did not that's, see many different as the previous? That's time? not a, That's not at all the last thing I did with Phil. No, the last thing that Billy Joel did with that's the last oh, thing, I think that Billy did. album that Phil yeah. Ramone produced. I don't know. I, I guess I mean things sort of wound down with Billy. You know, he just kind of slowed down. I mean, we we're all getting a little older. <laughs> you know, I think I think he had a few health issues and so forth. But um, we did a, a digital single some years ago, years ago called "All My Life." My life. Yes, I was going to ask you about that. It's the last, basically, the last song he's done, isn't it? I, I think so. But it yeah. was a big filmed. You can see it on YouTube. It's a big filmed thing where they made us wear ties and pretend we were doing it in the fifties. Have you seen the video? I have seen the video. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. What do you think of that song? Do you like it? Uh, it's it's good. It's not really one of my favorites. I mean, I I think it could be be stronger. 
search this whole world through Try as I might To find someone like you The years drifted by But it was always on my mind I didn't know just how long I'd go Until I ran out of time He's written so many great songs. Um, yeah, as a fan, you kind of admire the fact he stopped when he did. Well, at the same time, feeling frustrated yeah. that, like, well, what, what songs could he have written in the last 30 years? Sure, sure. Yeah. I, you might imagine that New York State of Mind is is a very popular song here in New York. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> and great song. Yeah, he's written a lot of great songs. Right. Also in 86, of course, is Graceland, Paul Simon. Yeah. Now, we, we touched on You Can Call Me Out before. Right. Um, it's quite a long quote from co-producer Roy Halley. Ah. Um, if you don't mind me reading it, it's my idea to end the tune with the excitement of having live horns playing the part that already been played several times by Rob Mancy on the synth. Then doubled that part by sinking them back in the, the mix stage. However, it was Rob who wrote it down for the horns. It's his arrangement, and the groove that's going on in that song is Rob's groove. He played the groove in the verses as well as the synth lines at the beginning and throughout the number. And it was that groove which turned the song into a monster, although the brass contributed quite a lot too. Mm-hmm. Now, again, is, is that true? And and we're talking about arrangements. I think Roy is giving me a little too much credit here. Okay. Actually, because I can't remember. I, I did I did a, a number of synth overdub sessions with with them. Maybe I did play that line, but that little part, that little chord part. It's it's really a rhythm guitar part. Yes, because there is a demo on the. Um extra tracks that does play that with with guitars yeah it's really originally played by a south african guitar player vincent i can't remember his last name it wasn't ray peary that was the other one and i might have played along with it on the synclavier or something that part I don't even remember. I probably did. But then Roy and Paul asked me, can you make a brass section play along with that same part, a bunch of brass? And they said, can we have a bass saxophone on the bottom of it? Why they specifically requested that, I'm not sure, but there is the bass saxophone. And then it's something like four trumpets and four trombones. I don't even remember. But the, you know, the, the arrangement probably took 10 minutes to write or less because it's it's two bars repeated right. forever. One time it's different. That one time it's different. And then in the fade at some point, they, they go through it eight times and then they, they jump up an inversion and they play a higher, higher inversion of it. But that's all.
but I was still very excited. I did an arrangement on Paul Simon record, and then they left the credit off the album, which was uh, not very nice. Was that accidental, or was that just? Well, I'm sure it was an accident. There was all there were all kinds of sloppy accidents going on, but I'm sure it was an accident. Right. That was a little disturbing, but it, people nowadays tend to know that was me. So. And you also worked on um, the Boy in the Bubble, another great track. Uh, yeah, and I think that's the one where I. He wanted me to play along with this accordion part, and it was the weirdest thing. That's the part where uh, he comes in. It's, it is the strangest rhythmic subdivisions. And it, you know, he really wanted me to play along on the synclavier with that accordion part. And it was really difficult because I'm not even sure how I would notate it. You know, I like to think I can quickly notate anything, but that rhythm, what is that rhythm? The rhythm is so in between everything. It's in between this and that. It's a little bit triplety, but it's a little bit dotted. I don't know what it is, but it's it's got its own crazy flavor to it. These are the days of miracle and wonder. This is the long distance call. The way the camera follows us in slow-mo The way we look to a song The way we look to a distant constellation That's dying in a corner of the sky These are the days of miracle and wonder And don't cry, baby, don't cry, don't cry You know the part I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, it's like the intro, isn't it? It's like, yeah. It's almost like it's backwards or something. It's yeah. almost like it's being played backwards. It's just so odd. But that's what makes the album so interesting because it kind of meshes yeah. these two worlds together and creates something, this hybrid yeah. is completely unique. Yeah, and, and I'll never forget when I, I used to have a, a loft space in New York down on 18th Street where I had a, a studio and also sometimes lived there. And I remember Paul Simon being down there and had, he had a cassette of uh, Ladysmith Black Mombazo. And there were a few people around, maybe six or seven people around. And he was, he was playing the cassette of Ladysmith, which I had never heard before. And I, I was just uh, so excited and struck by that. I had never heard anything like that. And he had brought that stuff back with him. When was the last time you listened to the album all the way through? Graceland? Yeah. I don't know. I hear I hear pieces of it all the time here and there. It's a fascinating record. I mean, you can yeah. call me out. It was absolutely massive in the UK. It's like number four. Yes. It's like a big, massive yeah. hit. So the, you still hear that everywhere all the time. Yes, it was a big hit here. My niece just got married a week and a half ago, and they played it at her wedding party. I had no idea that was coming. <laughs> I really had to, to walk outside. I mean, I, sometimes I I just can't listen to stuff that I did. Why? I, I I don't know. It's like it's there. There are too many uh, thoughts and opinions attached to it. It's easier to listen to something that you had nothing to do with. So, what are your when you listen to that song? What are your thoughts and opinions of it? Oh, you know, memories of doing it, memories of the people involved, memories of that ridiculous video with Chevy Chase. Do you not like it? <laughs> well, I, I don't know. It's okay. 
Do you think it trivializes the song? No, no, no. I mean, the song no. is a fun-loving song anyway. Yeah. I mean, it's not a serious song. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. When was the last time you spoke to Paul Simon? I, I think it must have been at Phil Ramone's memorial service where we, we played together on stage. Like we played um, 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover with, uh, with Steve Gadd, the original, oh, cool. the original drummer who invented that famous drum part yes. from the purchase of that song. God, possibly the most famous drum part of all, isn't it? It's just so distinctive. Maybe, yeah. yeah. Nat- naturally, it was just a little exercise he was warming up with in the studio. That's, I mean, that's how Paul discovered it. It sounds like that, too. Is there footage of that um, performance? Was it filmed? Oh, I don't think so. I think so. It was, it was really great to be on stage with Steve and, and Paul and play that song and have Steve playing that part. I mean, yeah, people, yeah. people were so excited just to see him do it. <laughs> you know? Wow. <laughs> Okay, I went to 1987, back as an artist now with Steve Kahn, who made Local Colour, which got nominated for a Grammy. Would you describe that as ambient jazz? What would you like? I don't know what it is, but uh, Steve invited me to do that with him, and uh, it was fun. Steve's a good, a good buddy of mine. We certainly, I guess, thought we had made some sort of jazz record. We had no idea we'd made a New Age record, which is, you know, the Grammy we were nominated for. (laughs) We were very amused by that. But it was really fun. And, you know, we were trying to find a a really new uh, process and a really new way to work. We would sit down to sort of a basic rhythm, basic rhythm pattern and improvise and noodle and throw things back and forth. And, you know, things developed from that. some of my questions like what percentage of it was improvised and what percentage of it was like planned from the outset well it's hard to say because the compositions originally came from some improvisations but then after the improvisations then we would kind of study the improvisations and transcribe stuff and sort of went through a compositional process where took stuff that was originally improvised and tried to put it in a compositional framework and then sometimes improvise next to that after you did that. So, you know, it was it's an attempt to kind of find some sort of middle ground that has features of both. So it's not easy to define what's written and what's improvised. It's sort of two sides of one thing. Also in 87, you produced an album that I had at the time. We produced several tracks on the album. That's Aztec Camera, Love, which seems oh, yeah. a bit of a left field choice when you look at what you'd worked on previously. So how did that come about? That seems like an odd mix of worlds. Where did that come from? I think it came from maybe from Joel Dorn. Do you know who Joel Dorn was? No. Joel Dorn was a producer. He was originally a, a radio guy from Philadelphia. He was the guy who originally broke Bette Midler and Roberta Flack. He discovered them. And he also he also worked with people like Rasson Roland Kirk and some real avant-garde jazz guys. But then he also worked with these folky kind of guys like Steve Goodman and John Prime. He's a fascinating guy, a, a real character. 
I worked on him very early on. You know, something you might have missed was a, a record by Steve Goodman called Say It in Private. Actually, it might have predated 1980. I loved Steve. Steve was a, just a great, great guy. And um, there's some wonderful stuff on that record. If you don't want me around all the time, cause I'm attracted to you. I know, 77, say it in private. Oh, yeah, it's, yeah, it was really okay. early. But I think it might have been Joel Dorn who knew Roddy Frame, Roddy, Roddy Frame from Glasgow, hmm. who was, uh, you know, the center of, Az, of Aztec camera. So I worked with Roddy on that. Did it you was know really, Aztec camera at the time when you, you were given. Not really, not really. Really, but I got to know Roddy. He was a wonderful guy. Uh, Kill him on the street for me is the, is the, like the classic. Yeah. That's a beautiful yeah. song. Yes, it's a great song. Great song. As the ships and the steel slip away to the cry of peace, there's a message for us. We can get there by bus from. There's a message for us We can get there by bus From Kilimanjaro Street Okay, also, um, 87 going to 88 is Carly Simon who worked on several tracks on a Coming Around Again album Yes Including As Time Goes By, a version of Time's Go goes by you produced has a stevie wonder harmonica solo yes how did yes. that come about uh they called him and invited him in and he said okay <laughs> simple and, as that uh, yes and um he had to play the he had to come in playing the middle eight of that song moonlight and love songs never out of date and he didn't remember it he, he remembered the first part of the song. He didn't remember the middle eight, so I had to sing it to him, which made me very, very nervous, having to sing to Stevie Wonder. Yeah. Now, of course, I mean, the guy is absolutely, a, he's a musical genius, and I've, I've worked with him since then on other things, and he's really, it's astounding. But naturally, he got it really fast, and he played great, and that was, that was it. Let the river run Let all the dreamers wake the nation Come the new Jerusalem Silver cities rise
Okay, going to 1988, a game with Carly Simon. You worked on the another string to your bow, uh, doing a mu- movie score for Working Girl, and um, producing Let the River Run, which I think is an absolutely fantastic track. I love Let the River Run. It won an Oscar, a Golden Globe, and a Grammy. So as a producer, I take it you don't win any of those. It's just the artist, the songwriter that gets those. Is that right? I think it's a songwriter's award, yeah. 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 So um, the experience doing, doing Let the River Run, as I said, is it was a beautiful track thanks well how was it approaching that because there's various versions of it within the film yes well it was a, it was an attempt to make a score for the film um it was it's it's you know it started with a little program thing on my old lindrum 3 actually with some custom chips that i hadn't made or something i forget we had to do it in a number of different keys uh, i did a uh, i did a choir version of it a boys choir version of it i don't know what else to tell you about that it was very interesting working with Mike Nichols on the picture. He's a fascinating guy. You, you may remember the opening of the, of the movie. Yeah. Where they play that song and they have a, it's a helicopter shot, a close-up of the Statue of Liberty's face. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. Circling the Statue of Liberty. One time I was in the editing room with Mike Nichols and the editor, Sam Osteen, and Mike wanted us to see something. I don't think Carly was there. And uh, he had synced up, just for fun, uh, Witchy Woman by the Eagles <laughs> to that film scene. And he played the film and he played that song. And uh, it was really interesting. <laughs> yeah, very different feel, I'd imagine. And Mike just, Mike looked around at everyone in the room, like with this little smile, like a little cat that ate the bird, you know. It really turned it into a completely different movie. It was really interesting. It was a great lesson in how you can put wildly different pieces of music against a picture and create a third thing that nobody knew was going to be born. It, that was really interesting. I, I assume it's a very different discipline trying to put music, do music cues for visuals. Mm-hmm. Was that something that you found easy or challenging? Uh, it's fun. It's fun. Of course, I had done I had done some TV stuff. I had done thousands of of TV commercials. Yes. At that point, I mean, that was really how we made our living in the early '80s. That was where the money was for us. So, I mean, it was it was fun working with picture, and and the technology had radically changed, radically changed through the '80s. The technology of working with picture it's completely different now. In the late '70s, early '80s, really very primitive compared to now. So yeah, I enjoy doing that. Um, I haven't really done a lot of it, but I, but I enjoy doing it when I when I get to. Uh, another album in 88, another one I had at the time was the Brian Wilson first solo album. Yeah. Do you, do you know exactly which tracks you played on, on that? I don't know. You don't? Because uh, you're credited on Emu Timpani, Piano, Synth Guitar and Emulated Cello. <laughs> Does that ring any bell? Oh, yes, I played the Emulated Cello on that song or... Yeah. 
that's a weird credit to have. It's weird that someone would be that specific. It's, you know, that doesn't make sense really. No, that was just something that I did again with Russ Teitelman, just making some sounds on, uh, on some tracks that already existed. Okay, so it wasn't with Brian there. Brian was there sometimes, yes. Okay. And was Dr. Landy around as well? I didn't meet Dr. Landy. His little, uh, his minions were around. Okay. His little interns. That was very peculiar because I remember being on a session with Russ and we were, it was just a normal little overdub session. We were trying to find sounds we liked. We were trying to find a part we liked. And then one of these kids gets on the phone talking to Dr. Landy, reporting in saying, yes, Rob and Russ are working. And at first they really couldn't get a groove going, but now they've kind of got <laughs> a groove going and now they're recording something. And it was really strange to be reported on. It was like the Stasi reporting us, you know. Yeah, I spoke to Hugh Padgham and mixed the record and he, he said yeah. something very similar about people being around, kind of noting things and yes. observing. Yes, so spying and taking notes and then reporting to Dr. Landy. It's really bizarre. So how was Brian Wilson? Was he, was he focused? Was he someone you could have a conversation with? Uh, no, no. no. To, to me, he, I don't like to say it, but he seemed kind of impaired. Right. Okay. And, and a bit disoriented, and I don't know. I felt bad for him. I, I don't know what was going on there. Let's move into 1989. There's one, one session with Eric Clapton for Run So Far. So George Harris' okay. song had George on, on guitar as well. So were you there when George was there recording his part as well? Maybe not on that song. I was there for the, like we had sessions for Eric's uh, project Journeyman. Yes, that's what we're talking about. That's a track on Journeyman. So that's the track, Run yeah. So Far, yeah. Yes, George was there, yeah, yeah. I got to, to play with, with both of them. I had never met a Beatle before, uh, so that was pretty exciting. That is cool. Yeah. I don't know what was left after after those those sessions were over. I mean, it was a lot of little little bits and parts, <laughs> so I don't know what survived and what didn't. So when you hear the record now, can you hear yourself on it? Or is it a case you, you, there was so um, much done, you can't tell what's yours and what's not? It's hard to remember, and it's hard to pick it out. Sometimes okay. I think I'm. Sometimes I think I'm picking it out, and sometimes I'm. Uh, I'm not sure. So when you're working with people like Eric Clapton and George Harrison, are you able to just separate who they are from them being musicians you're working with, or are you are you playing a part, looking across, saying that's, that's a fucking Beatle there? I guess you try to save that part for later. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you have to forget about that. Yeah. I mean, you're there to do something, and. They wouldn't have called you if you weren't uh, if you weren't able to do something special, and so you have to remember to do that and what it is, and forget about that other stuff. Were you able to have a conversation with George afterwards and, and ask him those kind of yes. questions? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. He was uh, he's a very nice nice man. He's a bit you know he's very soft spoken. Yeah, 
and quiet Eric was more um, Eric is more outgoing but they were very nice to work with it was very nice to meet them and of course I, I know that they're they're old old friends and been through a lot together including being married to the same woman or something <laughs> times I forget yes yes yeah but um, no, I have good good memories of that Okay, and, and we mentioned at the very beginning of the interview, um, the Flying Monkey Orchestra, um, your first album. Has, where did that name come from, the Flying Monkey Orchestra? It was kind of from, from uh, Chinese mythology. It was really from the, the, uh, the Journey to the West, which is the, uh, an old Chinese myth, but the, the monkey spirit who was kind of a, uh, a, a trickster-type character, you know, mischievous character. So it was really from that. And th- a particular like Three Moons, is, is that all your voices on that? Yes. That's quite impressive. Yeah, that whole record is all is all it's me. All you. Yeah, there are no guests of any kind. Right. How long did it take you to make? Oh, I don't know. A few months, off and on. It was a str- it was strange the way it happened. I, I was approached by Ron Goldstein, who was working for a company called Private Music. They were making these instrumental new age type records. They were, you know, making some far out records and they, they wanted to sign me. I So I made that piece uh, called Mr. Graffito, which is a piece about graffiti on subways, basically. And I sent it and they said, we love it. Does he have any other material? Which I thought was a funny question because from my point of view, I am material. If I, if I need material, I'll just make some. So I made a second piece called uh, Drink Moon Garden, I think. And then they passed, but someone else signed it, released the next two records on my own. Uh, and they had, of course, a lot of special guests that were musician friends of mine. Um, do you have a favorite track of the album? What on Dig? Dig, yeah. Well, I'm interested in retrospect in the, the, that piece, Mr. Graffito, because, you know, for me, it was kind of, it was very much a, uh, you know, an experiment, a compositional experiment. It has some indefinable form to it. But uh, it, it interests me a lot to listen back to it now. I was, I was, I was stretching out. I was looking for new things to do and new ways to do it. A fairly far out record. I mean, there, there are a lot of people that absolutely can't get even a quarter of an inch into it <laughs> because they just don't. They're just not going to get it. Yeah, yeah. They don't want to. They don't want to get it. <laughs> like, like, what is that? Kind of the way that I felt when I heard "Bitches Brew" the first time when I was a kid. You know, I couldn't understand it at first. 
but after two or three listens, I, you know, I started to hear everything. Yeah, it's one of those things that if you do get it, you really get it. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. And also sometimes it takes more than one listen and stuff starts to emerge from it. So that, that covers your 80s. Do you think there's anything out of the 80s that hasn't been mentioned that you'd like to? Oh, jeez. Because that's quite, that's quite a lot we've gone through. Yeah, well, there were, of course, there were a lot of other things. Yes. But uh, most of them were obscure, obscure things that no one ever heard about. I'm just checking my website discography, which is never up to date. You know, they're the other two Michael Franks records. Okay, if you had to pick one track off all your Michael Frank's 80s albums that you produced, which would be your favorite? Well, you know, in retrospect, I still really like Passion Fruit, which is the first one. And um, those are the other two, I, there, I think there's some really interesting good stuff. But in a way, I was, I remember during that time in the mid to late 80s having a little bit of a feeling of vertigo because the music technology was really exploding. And all of a sudden, it seemed like, okay, it's Wednesday, and today I should be able to make any sound in the universe that I can imagine. So where do I start? See what I'm saying? Yeah. I remember just feeling vertigo, like I don't know where to start with this. There are things that I know I should be able to do. I, I'm, I haven't quite devised a way to do them. And I was taking Michael in a, in a sort of more techno pop direction with this music, which might not have been that compatible for him. I mean, I think that we did some good stuff and he was, he was enthusiastic at the time about what we were doing, but was it the right direction for him? I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't know. It's, and, and, you know, at, at a distance now, I almost kind of like the first one better because it's a little more natural and less obviously technical. I think um, Tell Me All About It is the track that I, I, I like the most out of those. Here's a nice little story about that. Yes, I really like that song. Yeah. Uh, are you familiar with the Natalie Cole version? I know there is one. I, I've not actually listened to it, actually. I meant to listen well, to that one. It's produced by Tommy LaPuma, but I'm the arranger. Oh, okay. And we, we never talked about Natalie or her record, um, Stardust. That's that side of the 80s, isn't it? I thought it was in the 80s, Stardust. Where? Both racing to type it up to see. Stardust is 1996. Oh, really? It was that late? Wow. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I did a lot of work with, with Natalie, and I loved Natalie. She was fantastic. And she did a remake of that song. And I was, you know, slated to arrange it. I said to Natalie, you know, I, I produced that record. And did that arrangement and all that stuff. And she said, "You, I had no idea you produced that record. And she said, that's the record that got me through rehab. Because she, uh, you know, she had a very serious substance abuse problem, which she was very open about. She liked to talk about it because she hoped that 
it would help other people. And she was in, she was in rehab to try to stop shooting heroin, really a bad habit to start. And she said she used to listen to that, that record, that album all the time, Passion Fruit album, because it helped, you know, soothe her and it got her through rehab, which was really a great thing to hear. Yeah. And it's funny that it happened that way. That's yeah, small world, isn't it? That Yeah. Yeah. Okay. As a couple of things post ages I wanted to bring up. Because you've worked with a lot of people in the last 30 years, like Rod Stewart and Dionne Warwick and Tony right. Bennett, et cetera. But there's a couple I want to point out. It's Rihanna, of all right. people, you did the strings yes. uh, for, for a bunch of songs. How, how did that come about? came about from a guy named um, Carl Sturken. There was a, a production team named Sturken and Rogers, Carl Sturken and Evan Rogers. These were the guys that discovered Rihanna down in Barbados because she was the daughter of the housekeeper and they they brought her up to New York and they made these records. And I did the one of the really famous ones, which was called Unfaithful. Yes. Which was originally called Murderer. Nice. And every, every year I do a every year I do a little event talking to students at NYU where I talk about doing string arrangements for record. And I always play this as an example. This producer, Carl Sturkin, went through a, a period where he, he really fell in love with doing live strings, live, live string sessions, and making string arrangements a big part of a record. And that was nice for me because I got some good gigs out of it. So I did a number of things with him. And that's how it happened. I never met Rihanna. Never met her. So you still never met her? No. Do you have a but favorite out of the ones you worked on? Because I think there's four songs. Now I know and Faithful Final Goodbye in a Million Miles. Do you have a favorite? I, I don't remember the other one. I um oh, I you credited on them, so um no, I, I know I did them. Oh, you did um, them. Yes, okay. Yeah. Uh no, I don't remember them because I never hear them. <laughs> oh, okay. That's I hear one. Unfaithful every April because I do this event where I play it for students. Right. <laughs> and I show I do have the scores for these. I show them the scores and I talk about the scores and the arrangements and how they got recorded and so forth. That's cool. Story of my life, searching for the right, but it keeps avoiding me. Sorrow in my soul, cause it seems that wrong, really lost my company. He's more than a man, and this is more than love, the reason that the sky is blue. The clouds are rolling in, because I'm gone again, and to him I just can't be true. And I know that he knows I'm unfaithful, and it kills him. the much missed george michael much yeah. loved uh you worked on songs from the last century and symphonica uh lp any particular memories of working with george and any any particular tracks that stand out for you now well that was with phil ramon again yeah the most interesting and rather odd thing that happened is that he wanted to do the song it's all right with me which is an old standard and he wanted to do a slow sad heartbreaking version of it. So I made a track with an orchestra arrangement and 
the next thing I heard was George doesn't feel he can sing it. He t he tried to sing it. He doesn't feel that he can sing it. He's not happy with his singing on it, but he's putting it on the album as a hidden bonus track with no vocal and with no one playing the melody either. It's like a music minus one track with no melody, but it's on the album as a hidden bonus track. I just find that so strange. That'd be a waste of an arrangement otherwise, wouldn't I think? Well, it's a bit of a waste of an arrangement anyway. Right, okay, at least I mean, you get to get it Who's going to hear it? Uh, people will not hear it. Uh, you know, you, you play through the CD and there's a long space and you think, well, that's the end of that. And then this thing comes on. And yeah. it's well, the fans definitely, no, the fans have definitely listened to a hidden track, the George Michael hidden track. Oh. I, I, yeah, people, people have, will have heard it. The weirdest thing yeah. is I was, I was sitting in a cafe in Manhattan on Ninth Avenue and it came on and I, I just, I recognized my own writing after a minute. I thought, what on earth is this? It sounds kind of empty and there's no melody. And I sort of recognized my own string writing and little contra, like string counter melodies and stuff. I was thinking, geez, that really feels like something that I wrote. <laughs> and it was, and it was, I couldn't believe it. I, and I asked them, you know, well, oh, it's this hidden bonus track. It's, you know, and then strangely enough, sometime later, I sold a copy of that arrangement to Frank Sinatra Jr. who wanted to do it live. It was in the style of his father. Now, Frank Sr. had already died. Frank Jr. died. George Michael died. You know, Phil is gone. You know, I'm, I'm the, I'm the <laughs> only survivor. That song is cursed. I'm Destroy the, that arrangement. Have you still got uh, the arrangement for that? I'm the only survivor in the whole story. That's <laughs> terrible. Uh, somehow. Uh, it's all right with me. Yeah. It's, it's all right with me. Well, now. So is there a recording of, him, of Frank Sinatra Jr. singing that? No, I don't think so. No. I oh, doubt that's it. A shame. That's it's a shame. Wanted, yeah, it's something he wanted to do live, I think. We also that, did stuff with Donny Osmond around the same time. And uh, I really enjoyed working with Donny. Uh, he's really, really good singer and nice guy, great guy. Could you get him to record it then? I think you've got this string arrangement, you've got it recorded, you yeah. got it. You yeah. need someone to sing it. You need to get someone to sing it. Well, someone must own the, own the recording. I don't know who the company would be. Okay, you got the arrangement. You can do it again. Record it again right, and get could. someone. Yeah. Let's have. I want to hear a version with the vocal. Yeah. If you could pick yeah. any of the artists you work with that could realistically record it, get Rihanna to do it. There you go. Uh, no. No. I've worked with I've worked with a lot of wonderful singers, and um, she's not one of them. Oh, ouch! Burn. But, oh, I'm sorry. Did I say that out loud? <laughs> you don't write so it. So the the songs that you did the strings for for her, do you not particularly like her vocals on them? Then. Well, I don't understand why they like that vocal sound on her. I don't understand why they like it. such a needly bright, 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 thin needly vocal sound. Like that's her trademark, and uh, like. Uh, I just don't care for it, but you know, maybe it's a matter of taste. That's, yeah, that's the modern style, I guess, isn't it? Uh, it's for her, it certainly is. A matter of no, 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 hey, hey. So, for that song, for that track, it should be a man because it's going to be in a man's key. Uh, yes, for sure. Okay, so who would you pick to sing that if you could choose? I want this to happen. I want to hear this a vocal version. Well, you know who could actually sing it? Who is now, you know, someone I've worked with a lot is, is the Nashville artist Brett Eldridge. Okay, come on, get, make it happen, make it happen. Yeah, 
you know, he can sing in that style very convincingly. And and the other one I want to mention is um, uh, God Give Me Strength, Elvis Costello and Burt Bacharach. Oh, so, so exciting to work with. Oh, my God, that, that, I, that entire album is a masterpiece, as is that song. It's probably my favorite album in the last 25 years. I absolutely love the album and that track. Yeah, yeah and they're both, both really cool guys. I, I really enjoyed working with them and meeting them. And, and I worked, of course, I did the concert at the White House to honor Burt Bacharach and Hal David when they won the uh, Gershwin Prize. Right, yes. And uh, it was, you know, Phil Ramone, again, put this concert together. I was the music director for that. And Stevie Wonder performed and Lyle Lovett and a lot of other great people. Of course, Bert, you know, Bert Bacharach is a, is a big hero to all of us who are, you know, a generation younger or maybe half a generation, a generation younger, I guess. So that was really, really great. And... Uh, and Elvis and Elvis Costello was a really great guy to work with too. So is that all recorded as live? That track. That record. I'm, I'm sure that they overdubbed a little bit. I don't know. I don't know. Actually, I think my parts were were overdubs to existing tracks. Oh, okay. Okay. I quite remember. The weirdest place you have heard your music. <laughs> oh, I wish I could think of something good. I don't. I can think of some some nice places that I've heard it. But okay. What's the nicest place weird. you've heard your music? Well, one nice one was in in Hawaii, hanging out with some friends at a barbecue in the backyard. Everyone drinking rum and tonics. And uh, Crazy For You came on the radio in 1985. Oh. That was kind of cool. That was, that was kind of cool. And you pointed out that this is your song, yeah? Oh, that's, this is a thing I did. Yeah. I had no idea it was uh, number one either. <laughs> I'm just surprised to hear it. Okay, biggest diva moment witnessed. Oh, boy. Biggest diva moment. Wow. Probably it has to be Aretha Franklin. Okay. <laughs> At, a, at the Music Cares concert, where we first did her performance of Nessun Dorma, the Puccini aria, trying to run through it with her was very, very difficult. And I, I was just, I was tempted to just leave the stage and go home. Is that because she didn't want to rehearse it, or she was nervous? It was, or no, it was well, you know, you know, it was. She was at first. She was saying, just set a steady tempo and i'll just backphrase and like 
And I was thinking, this is Italian opera. This is not going to work. But you cannot tell her anything. Mm. I mean, it's Italian opera. It should be cola voce, meaning, you know, Miss Franklin, you just sing it however you feel it. And my eyes will never leave you. And I will conduct everyone. And we will be with you. That's how you'd want to do it. But, you know, she couldn't really trust yeah. to just set a steady tempo. So we tried doing that naturally. It was didn't work. She said, it's running away. It's running away. And so you couldn't play it fast enough. You couldn't play it slow enough until you'd managed to just run through one. And she starts to feel comfortable and it works. And then she's blowing kisses at everybody and everything's wonderful. And of course, when she did it, she blew the roof off the place. I mean, it was unbelievable. And people yeah, I've seen the video. It's quite amazing. Well, you've seen it probably in the Oscars, which was the next night. And that wasn't even her key. sang it in that lower key because Pavarotti got sick wow. and she just took the stage because she had done it the previous night with us in New York. There's a version out there where she sings it in the correct key. And it's, it's just astounding. It's, it's made from a recording of the live thing that we did, but then we overdubbed more strings and stuff. It's fantastic. to her sing all day long yeah yeah well, i'm glad i didn't voice. have to work with her again though <laughs> really it was too hard you had worked with her in the 80s on an album hadn't you yeah yeah was, was that was she difficult then as well or was it just i'm not sh- i'm not i can't remember if she was around i think she was around but she wasn't real involved right okay hidden gem song more people should know like didn't it's like an album track or a single didn't do very well, but you think it should be known by more people. Okay. Our production of uh, on Aaron Neville's album, Nature Boy, of the song Who Will Buy. Who Will Buy. Who Will Buy, which is from the musical Oliver, but our version of Who Will Buy by Aaron Neville. Did you well, hear that? What makes it so special? Well, I hope that you will feel that the arrangement is special, that his performance is special, and that the the performance the performers on the track are special and it's a it's a rethinking of the song but in a way that really works and that works for him i think i hope who will buy 
this wonderful feeling I'm so high I swear I could fly Me oh my I don't want to lose it So what am I to do To keep the sky so blue There must be someone who Okay, always end on the same four questions. Okay, so your biggest professional disappointment of the 80s. Biggest disappointment. I, I, you know, I've been very, very lucky. I don't know that I have the right to claim to be disappointed by anything. I mean, a regret that I have, as, as we said earlier, was not jumping up and getting involved in the Shaka Khan I Feel For You album. And I love Shaka too. I think she's just the greatest singer. I love her singing. Uh, your single favorite moment of the 80s professionally. If you could freeze frame one moment in time in the decade, what would it be? Well, I'm not, I'm not sure, but... Oh, shoot. I was going to say something, but I don't think it was in the 80s. <laughs> what were we going to say? Uh, it was something from a Natalie Cole, a Natalie Cole session, but that doesn't count because it was... Hmm, was it being high and telling Madonna that their backing vocals sucked? <laughs> that, that's quite cool. You told Madonna that you laughed at Madonna's backing vocals. Not many people got to do that. I didn't, in the 80s. I didn't say. I didn't say that they sucked. I, no, you, I, you you laughed. You just I was, was just giggling yeah. because yeah. they they sounded funny to me. Okay. <laughs> I, mean, I felt like I felt like the parts did not fit together, and I just started laughing at it. I mean, I was horrified by her lead vocals, actually. But oh, I really. Did you express that in any way? No, 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 no. no. I mean, no. You, you can't do that. You can't do that to a no, singer. No, Singers not. are very delicate people. Yeah. Singers could be extremely fragile. Oh, here's one. Here's one. Just a really fun moment. I used to work occasionally with Phoebe Snow, and I, I really loved Phoebe a lot. She's a great person, uh, a real nut, but a, in a wonderful way. And when I first was introduced to her, by my friend Elliot Shiner, the great engineer and mix engineer. She was on vocal rest and she had a little pad and pencil and she was writing little messages to people because she was not supposed to speak. She was on vocal rest, which a lot of serious singers do every so often, right? So we were introduced and she wrote a note to me and she said, can I do anything to you that I want? <laughs> and I, and I, I looked at her and I, she didn't look terribly dangerous. So I, I said, um, well, okay, you can do anything to me that you want. And she grabbed me and she buried her face in my neck and gave me a big raspberry in my neck, you know, like you do to a baby. Yeah. And then she just looked at me and smiled to see what my reaction would be, I guess. And I was really, really shocked. <laughs> for, you know, from then on, she could just do no wrong to me. I just, I don't know what it was. It's just the fact that she, she thought to do that and she thought it was funny and, she, you know, she, and she did it. And who cared what anyone thought? I just loved her. I loved the way that she sang. I loved everything. You know, I, I, I loved who she was. I love, I, love the, I love the fact that you, like, you've, Worked on Oscar-winning songs. You worked on Graceland. You've worked with all these different mm. people, and your highlight is being given the raspberry by Phoebe Snow. That's yeah, brilliant. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was special, and it was yeah. I, you know, I really loved Phoebe. I, you know, when she died, it was I was just so sad. It was one of the times when I just cried and cried because Phoebe was gone. It was just yeah. 
It was really, really, really special. The Eternal Jukebox. I do a thing called the Eternal Jukebox, where all music is gotten rid of, but you're able to keep three of the songs you worked on in the 80s for all eternity. Which three songs do you keep? That I worked on? Yeah, any songs you worked on in the 80s. Well, maybe one of them would be Third World Man. Okay. That's a great one. Oh, man. You know, you're, you're taking me back to the 80s, and the 80s were just, they were a long time ago. Um, and I don't make a habit of re-listening to stuff. Oh, here's a good one. <laughs> and I think it's, it looks like it came out in 1980. One of my favorite orchestrations I ever did for Ashford and Simpson. It's a song uh, called Landlord by Gladys Knight and the Pips. That's a good one. Put that one down. Okay. What makes that special to you? It really works. It's a good, it's a good orchestration. I love Janice. I love Gladys. I mean, I, I love Gladys. I love the song. The song's a, a really sweet little R&B song. Um, I, I don't know. I just like everything about it. And I'm, I'm really proud to have done it at a, at a very, very uh, tender age, too. Yeah, that was 1980, so that's good. And is yeah. there a third song you'd keep? Let's say... Michael Frank's How the Garden Grows. That's the closing track of Passion Fruit featuring Toots Thielemans. Yes, on harmonica. Yes. Excellent. Three, three good choices. And okay. finally, uh, your three words to describe your 80s. Very, very eventful. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> How, does that work? That it's works two, perfectly, yes. Two varies, but uh, maybe that's a little redundant. This is the end of the interview. Thank you very much. That was the end of the Rob Manzi interview. Massive thanks to Rob and Joe for setting it up. Check out Rob on his website at robmanzi.com. Really interesting guy, Rob, uh, with a great career. And just for the work on And at the River Run alone, he deserves the immortality that he doesn't crave. I love this version you're listening to now. The humming Carly version. It's called Looking Through Catherine's House. It's just, just sublime. I could listen to this on a loop for about three days. So, uh, God bless you, Robin. God bless you, Carly. Especially this bit. I love this bit coming up. This bit now.
So to end with, we'll go back to song referenced at the end of the interview. The Natalie Cole version of the Michael Frank song, Tell Me All About It. It was of great comfort to her, one in rehab, so let it be a comfort to you too in these troubled times. Uh, and I will speak to you very soon. Peace. Love. When we touch, I shiver. Just body language, can you blame it? My love's like a raging river. Spin.
We're coming to the edge. Running on the water, coming through the fog, your sons and daughters.